Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Drew, married to Polly. Um, and uh, yeah, been a part of this church for a number of years, and it's so good to be sharing God's word with you this morning from Ezra 4. Um, I wonder, have you ever felt discouraged? Have you ever felt like you're trying to follow him, you're trying to please him, you're trying to live by his ways, but you just feel like you are fighting an uphill battle? You can't win anything. There's no fruit, it seems. There's only frustration. You're tired. You're discouraged. You find yourself thinking, God, shouldn't this be easier, right? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to live by your ways. I'm trying to do what you've called me to. Why is there so much hardship attached to this Christian life? I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I know there have been times in my life where I have felt like that. And today we're going to see from our passage in Ezra 4 that the people of God will always face opposition in their endeavors to follow him. An encouraging word this morning. The people of God will always face opposition in their endeavors to follow him. And yet, there is a way, I believe, that God calls us to live in a world full of opposition. Now, we're going to read Ezra 4. It is quite a lengthy passage, so if you've got it on your phone, you can scroll there. It will be up on the thing uh, on the screen just now. But just to give you some context, maybe you're joining us for the first time, where we are in the story, God's people have been in Babylon in exile. They've been exiled out of Jerusalem because of their, their sins and turning away from God. So God allowed them to be taken to Babylon by an enemy people, the Babylonians. Babylon then gets overthrown by the Persian uh, army um, uh, or empire. And now King Cyrus, the Persian king, allows the people of God, a remnant of them, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple that was destroyed and to rebuild the city that was destroyed, and ultimately so that they can worship God the way that he uh, designed them to worship in the temple with sacrifices. They were unable to do that in exile. And so some timelines, because um, not because I love timelines, but because the, the story jumps in timelines, and so it's good to, just to know where we are. So to understand the story, here's a timeline of what's happening. King Cyrus issues the decree that they can go back to Babylon, uh, back to Jerusalem, sorry, in 538. Um, a couple of I mean, this is all backwards, so I'm not going to tell you the distances. I can't do the maths. But years later, 522, King Darius is now ruling, and that's kind of the, the phase that we're going to be focusing on, the, the, that gap between the decree and King Darius's rules. But then um, jumping later in time, King Xerxes rules, and then King Artaxerxes uh, rules later, and you'll see why that becomes relevant. And so uh, what happens in the passage is we start between the first two dates, then he jumps forward in time to the last date, and then he kind of comes back to the first two dates. I'll walk you through it when we get there, but just so uh, it doesn't feel like Inception or one of Christopher Nolan's films, this is a, a helpful layout. So let's read from Ezra chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of King Cyrus of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of, per of, king of Persia. So that's those two dates we looked at. 
And in the reign of Ahasuerus, which is also Artaxerxes, it's in Greek, I think, uh, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So we've jumped forward to those last two dates. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Miradeth and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Reham, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Reham, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapur deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. So that was just who wrote the letter, and this is what they said. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Reham, the commander. Okay, I'm going to just jump a, a little bit ahead. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to her of the king? Okay, now we're going to go back. So that was forward in the time of Artaxerxes. Now we're going back to the time of um, Cyrus. And they say, then when the king, sorry, that's coming in the verse. Later. Then when the copy of the king Artaxerxes' letter was read before Reham and Shimshai, the scribe of the associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them to cease. Okay, now we're jumping back in time, back to the beginning. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So if you can just bring that timeline up again. So we started there. Uh, they were discouraged. They were persecuted. They were, uh, counselors were bribed, all that sort of thing. We jumped into time. People wrote a letter to the king. They asked them, look at the records. Jerusalem is a wicked city. You should make them stop building the, the city. He says, yes, stop them building the city. We go back in time, and uh, they were also um, made to stop building the temple. So you can see that what we have here is a bunch of God's people who have made their way to Jerusalem to, work, to start work on the temple and the city. And we see that they've come up against a constant force of opposition in their quest to carry out God's calling in their lives. And this opposition arrives in various forms. We're going to unpack it a little bit now. First, the, the opposition came in the form of deception and the temptation to uh, compromise their commitment to God. 
These adversaries say to them in verse 2, Let us build with you, for we worship the same God as you. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of uh, Ursadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. You see, what happened was these people who were in the land that the Israelites had come to rebuild Jerusalem in, they claimed to worship Yahweh like the Jews did. And it was true. They did worship him. But the problem was, and we read in 2 Kings, that they were actually worshiping Yahweh amongst a whole bunch of other gods. And the fact that they say that we've been sacrificing to him is actually kind of like a, a dead giveaway. It's a problem because the temple had been destroyed, and so there was no way that they could rightfully sacrifice to Yahweh because the temple had been destroyed. And so they're saying, yeah, we've been sacrificing to him. They could have said, well, by what account and what laws have you been sacrificing to God? Because surely you should not be doing that. So these folks are claiming to be on the same side as the Jews when actually they aren't. And by accepting their help, Zerubbabel would have been compromising on their call to be a distinct people, dedicated to following God according to His ways. These people are described as advers- adversaries, and so this offer of help is actually like a wolf coming in sheep's clothing. They want to undermine the work of God's people. Now, this must have seemed like a good deal at first, right? These people are offering to help and assist, and if you if it had a big um, project or building project and someone says, hey, we can help, you must think, sure, the task is massive. These guys, they kind of believe similar things to us. Why don't we just, you know, let them in? Why don't we just let them help us out? We'll still manage it and control it, but, we, you know, we'll, let's take all the help we can get. Surely it can't hurt. But what does the rubble and the leaders do? They reject them. They say, you have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord. You see, they chose to remain faithful to the vision and the conviction that they have in what God had called them to do, and they chose to persevere in their calling. They chose to persevere in being a distinct people, a holy people, a people who followed God's um, will, but also His ways, what He wanted to achieve, but also the way He wanted to achieve it. That was the first form of opposition, a form to uh, compromise um, their faith. The second opposition comes in the form of outright discouragement and persecution. So after Zerubbabel and the friends reject the offer, the adversaries show their true colors, right? It says they became brazen in their resistance. It says they discouraged the people of Judah. They made them afraid. They bribed counselors against them all the days of Darius. The word here, discouragement, in the Hebrew has the phrase to weaken the hands. They actively worked against them. You can think of uh, ESCOM, you know, just the constant sabotage. No matter how hard you try, there's just active sabotage against what they were trying to do. They intimidated them. I read a story this week of a, a city official who was on a, on a building project, actually, for, for housing, I believe, and she was, she was shot because there was a, a people who did not want the project going up there, um, adversaries to kind of uh, the, the ways of the city. And this is a, a similar example. People are coming against the Israelites to cause them to lose courage. That's literally what discourage means, to lose courage in what they were doing, to lose enthusiasm for what God had called them to. Another form of opposition comes in the form of slander. We saw in verse 6 that now we flash forward in time to the time of Artaxerxes, and you must know now that the temple has been built. I think this is going to be covered in, in, in talks to come over the next few weeks. The temple has been built, and now the Jews are, are building the city. They're building the city walls around the temple to protect it, and we see that a bunch of leaders and officials in the land team up. They come together, all those names that we read. They gather together, and they, they petition the king, Artaxerxes, um, and they use slander against the Jews by calling them a re- uh, Jerusalem a rebellious and a wicked city. 
They paint God's people as a danger to the king and to society. Another form of opposition comes in the, in the form of lies and accusation. Carrying on in the letter, they say that if you let the city be built, they're not going to pay you taxes. They're not going to pay you customs and tolls, and the king is going to be hurt. Your finances are going to be hurt, and this was not true. There was no way for, there was no precedent for Jerusalem not doing those things or taking control of a whole region that they painted out to be, um, but they even sucked up to the king and said, oh, because we eat the salt from the palace, which is kind of like, because we are loyal to you, because we, you know, we grew up with you, we, we're in your rugby team in varsity, come on, we, we're close. We, we, because of all this history we have with you, we're going to tell you the truth. We can't bear to watch the king suffer. They bring up the wicked past of Jerusalem and they say, go look at the records. Go see what happened in the city. Go look at how they rebelled and, and uh, how they were, had to be uh, laid to waste. And this was a clever ploy because it was partly true. Jerusalem and the Jews had been wicked uh, t- towards God. And so um, they, there was an element of truth in this, but they were projecting their parsons and kind of saying, this is what they're going to do. This is, you know, you can't change a leopard spot. This is who they are. And so what happens? Well, the king replies, and he says, I've looked at the records. I've seen, I believe what you're saying. Make them stop building the walls. And when this letter was read out, the author notes that the leaders were quick to put it into practice. Verse 23 said, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them stop. So we see here that the opponents got what they wanted in the time of Artaxerxes, but they were also successful in causing the work of God to stop in the time of Cyrus, right? We, we, in verse 5, we jump back to the time when they were discouraged, when they were made to be afraid, when the counselors were bribed against them. And it, we read how the work was stopped there at the same time until the second year of Darius. Now, um, that would have been 15 to 16 years later that the work stopped, the temple stopped being built. There was no progress. Imagine that. I mean, it's very easy to read this now, right? You kind of read the, t- the work stopped until the second year of Darius, and then it continued. And we kind of turn the page. It's a few verses, and we think, okay, you know, maybe a little bit of a hiccup. But actually, that was 16 years, right? If you project your life now in 16 years, how much time that is, there would have been people who were born in that time, who grew up in that time. There would have been people who were waiting for the work to continue, and they would have died in 16 years, waiting for God's work to continue. And this is a tragedy that God's people who were sent on this mission to do what he called them to were stopped in what they were doing. And I wonder, where have we seen something like this in the Bible before? Where have we seen God's people discouraged or come up against opposition and the work of God has been halted? Well, one example is in Moses, uh, in Numbers, when Moses sent out the 12 spies to spy out the promised land and say, what's it like? God's laid this land uh, before us. We can go and take it, come back and tell us how we're going to do so. And 10 of them came back and said, no, we can't do it. The the giants are too big. We're we're never going to do it. And two of them said, no, we, we can do this. God's with us. He's called us to this. And what happened? Well, Moses listened to the 10 and they were in the wilderness for 40 years, the 40 years that God's work stopped as well. But not only do we see this in the past, but This story is a part of a bigger story that is unfolding across Scripture. What's happening here is a a foreshadowing of what's to come later. Whilst God has ordained for these people to rebuild the physical temple to worship Him, they were an early indication, an early sort of shadow of the true and final temple that God would be building many years later. When Jesus came, when He died, and when He rose again, He instituted a new temple. That is His church, and it's 
this temple, his church, which is where God chooses to dwell, right? He's not confined to a physical building. He is in his people, the church. And as he calls people to himself, he's adding to them to this everlasting temple that cannot be shaken and that cannot be destroyed. Ephesians 2 describes it like this. It says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. We're going to sing a song that speaks to that later. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple into, in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. What an amazing passage. 1 Peter says something similar. He says, you also are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Friends, the death and the resurrection of Jesus isn't some sort of cosmic insurance policy that you just sign up for. It is a radical rewriting of your reality here on earth. You are now, if you are in Christ, you are now a living stone you are being built upon the cornerstone of Christ himself. You are being added and built into his church. And just as the Israelites faced persecution and opposition in the building of the physical temple of God, we too face opposition in our calls. Anton alluded to this earlier. We face this both as a church, as a, as a global church, but also as individuals following God. So let's look at that briefly. How do we face opposition today? Well, Similarly, there are three things I've got here. It's not an exhaustive list, obviously, but similarly to the Israelites, we face opposition from our own sinful desires, right? Yes, we are in Christ. He's given us a new, uh, a new heart and a new spirit, but there is still this element of the flesh within us that's pulling towards uh, sinful desires. We are tempted to compromise in our allegiance to Christ. We're tempted to make concessions that maybe promise us short-term gain, um, but actually draw us away from who God is. Think about uh, the way we treat people, the, the policies we, we follow at work that we know probably aren't actually in line with who God is, how we choose to put ourselves first over other people when we're tempted in those moments. So that's the first thing. We face opposition by our own sinful desires at times. We face opposition, though, also from the world, right? As the world moves from or has moved from a, a neutral view of the church to an antagonistic or a, um, a hostile view of it, Christians are more likely to be a target of slander, just like the, the Jews were. I wonder if you've ever been labeled something for your commitment to following God. Perhaps you've been called a bigot because you follow a, an orthodox sexual ethic that, that uh, God has laid out. Or perhaps you've been labeled a fundamentalist because you believe that, you know, uh, Jesus is the only way to God. You know, Christianity is quite popular and it's just one of a myriad things, but when people claim it to be the exclusive thing, suddenly it is coming up against culture. See, Jesus was once seen as a quirky, kind of hippie character with nice platitudes that if you followed him, good for you. But now he's seen as someone who actually inspires hate speech to those who disagree with him. And the church is constantly under pressure to align its views with the current views of our age. As a Christ follower, you can feel intimidated to speak up for what you believe. Sharing your faith now doesn't just feel like an act of faith. It actually feels like an act of cultural suicide in many ways. Now, we also, so we face from our own sinful desires, we face opposition from the world at times. We also face opposition from the devil. And this is probably bigger than we realize in our sort of 21st century intellectual world, uh, especially in the West. Um, 
but the devil seeks to harm the church and individuals on a, on a constant basis. I just think of the, the countless scandals that have hit the church in the last few years, and you just, you know, you see a pastor trending on Twitter, and you just know it's bad news. Um, and these aren't just, uh, you know, personal moments of, of sin and, 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 and hurt that pastors have committed, but these are attacks uh, from the devil, undermining the credibility of the church, drawing people away from him. Um, the devil is also... Uh, he doesn't just attack the church, but he attacks our hearts as well, right? The devil is referred to in the Bible as the accuser, and that is what he, he does to us. He comes to us and he, he, he accuses us with half-truths, things that there's, there's a kernel of truth in there, but it's not the full picture, and he accuses us with full-on lies. He says, oh, you failed again. You tried, but you failed again to, to please God. You're not the Christian that everyone thinks you are. I've felt it in my own heart. I've felt like, sure, if people actually know my thought patterns, if people know what I was thinking in that moment, there's no way they would, you know, consider me a leader in the church or even just a, a person of integrity. And the devil can discourage you in that moment. He highlights our failings and he causes us to become discouraged. He attacks our hearts with fatigue. You know, we, Paul alluded to it, we're running at such a, a fast pace and the devil can cause us to, be, to grow weak and tired for the things of God. We lose sight on what God is doing in the world and in our hearts, and we only focus on the frustrations to the point that we can become ineffective, much like the, the Jews did. And a, a story from my own life is that I remember going through a phase where I was leading a life group with, with, uh, with Polly years ago, and we had been trying to hand over that life group for about three or four years. And every time we, we, we thought, okay, there's someone we can hand it over to, they moved to Joburg or the States or whatever. And we got to a point where we were like, we are just so broken. We just cannot leave this thing. I remember having Steph, he's not here now, over for dinner. And we said, Steph, we're done, bro. Like, I'm not giving you a warning. This is it. We are out. Don't try to talk us out of it. And we had become discouraged in our hearts. And now I'm not saying never take a break, <laughs> never read your season. But there was a, there's a point of healthy taking a break from something and also just growing discouraged. I remember another time when, uh, probably not long after that, just being discouraged at church. Um, coming on, nothing had changed, the preaching hadn't changed, the worship hadn't changed, people hadn't really changed, but it was just like, oh man, just couldn't be excited to come to church on a Sunday, uh, and uh, my brother who was leading at the time I, had me for coffee, asked what was going on, and I realized it's actually, it's not the church's fault that's happening, something's grown in my heart, a discouragement has risen up um, in, in, in my own heart. So what then is the answer? How are we called to live in face of opposition? Maybe this is relating to you very closely. Maybe you're actually not in a place of discouragement, but we will face opposition in our lives. So what are we to do? As Christ followers, we are called to face opposition, I believe, with faith-fueled perseverance. Faith-fueled perseverance. Notice that this isn't just perseverance, Right? If I say, you guys have just got to persevere, some of you are going, great, I'm a long-distance runner, I'm doing the cycle tour, Maxine, one hour in the Saunders pool, like, you say perseverance, and I'm saying, challenge accepted, I will go, I will push myself, I can do it. Others of you are saying, not a chance, I can't, I can't persevere, you know, um, Anton um, alluded to Lent, and I saw this hilarious meme this week that said, for Lent, I'm giving up just giving up everything. I'm not giving up a single thing. I'm just giving up. And maybe that is, that is you this morning. You feel like, don't ask me to persevere. I am at the end of myself. But this isn't white-knuckle it, 
hold on at all costs, muster up the strength, just get there, just get to the end of your life and Christ will welcome you home. This isn't that kind of perseverance. No, this is perseverance that is informed and empowered by a trust and faith in who God is and what he's done and what he promises to you. Too often we, we try to persevere and then we get to the end of ourselves and then we say, okay, now I'm gonna have faith. Jesus, take the wheel. But faith, but what faith-fueled perseverance is is when you connect the story of who God is, of what he's doing in your life, and then living out of that reality. You remind yourself of who God is, what he's doing, what he's promised, and you live according to that story, not according to the story that you tell yourself. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, you are now, as we said, you are being built into his temple, his everlasting temple. And that cornerstone of, the, of that church and that temple is Jesus, right? It's a church that cannot be shaken, no matter how much persecution, how much opposition it comes up against. It cannot be destroyed. And faith-fueled perseverance is looking to Jesus and seeing that, yes, he faced opposition in his mission of reinstituting the temple. And so he can sympathize with you. He's not saying, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just make your way. He faced opposition from the people who should have known him best, right? He faced opposition from his own disciples. He faced opposition from the, the scribes and the Pharisees who, who should have known the law of God and should have seen who he was. He faced opposition from the state and the authorities, much like the Jews in the time of Ezra. Not only was he slandered, but he was beaten and, and killed. And so in Jesus, friends, we have a Savior who sympathizes with the resistance and the opposition and the discouragement that we face. He was beaten on your behalf. He was killed on your behalf. But then he rose again on your behalf. And now he sits in heaven ruling and reigning. And before he went to the cross, Jesus made a promise, right? A promise that probably we don't like to remind ourselves of. But he says, you will have suffering in this world. He promised all of us, you will have suffering in this world. But then he follows it up. I says, be courageous. I have conquered the world. And so, yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is opposition. Yes, it does feel like sometimes we're just moving through quicksand. But Christ is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And that is good news. He is marching you to glory. Doesn't matter how strong or how weak your faith in him is, it's the fact that it's in him that matters. He is taking you to glory. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. Therefore, friends, this morning, do not lose heart. Though outwardly you may be wasting away, yet inwardly you are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix your eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since, that, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There's so much in there. But friends, Christ is renewing you day by day. And so in the midst of whatever you're facing, you can fix your eyes on not what is seen in front of you, not in front of the opposition, but on what is unseen and what is internal. The fact that Christ is far more committed to you and to his church than you are, and he is not going to let you go. That's what it means to live by faith. Jesus promised us trouble in this world, yes, but he also promised to be with us. Anton mentioned this as well. He says, sure, in Matthew 28, surely I am with you always. This is one of the greatest gifts of the gospel, friends, that Christ himself, the king of heaven, is always with us. He never leaves us. He never abandons us. And so this might not diminish the pain or the severity of what you're facing, 
but it means that you don't have to face it alone. This amazing quote I came across this week from uh, Robert McShane, I believe. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What an amazing thought. Christ is with you. The Bible says Christ is interceding for you. If you could hear him, the prayers that he is offering up to the Father for your protection, for your, for your endurance, for your perseverance, it would just give you faith, right? But the fact is the distance makes no difference. Christ is with us. He is on our side and he is praying for us. So we can persevere with faith and assurance that he is with us. And as we come to a close this morning, I want to invite the, the rest of the band up. Uh, I want to make space for us uh, to respond to, to this, this call and this uh, message. And this is the invitation today. Some of you are facing opposition in your walk with God and in your following of him. Whether it's from external forces that you know and you can see and, you, and you've identified, or it's from just your own heart, it's from discouragement, whatever it might be. Perhaps you are feeling discouraged. You feel like your hands have been weakened. You feel like you're just walking through quicksand in your faith with God. You've lost courage. You've lost enthusiasm to be the salt and the light that God has called you to. Perhaps there are pockets in your heart where you've just grown cold. The work has stopped. For whatever reason, you've stopped building towards the things of God in your lives. Friends, if that's you this morning, you can't muster your way out of that. You can't work your way out of that. What you need and what we need is God to come by his grace and by his mercy and to revive us again. We need to raise our hands and surrender and say, God, I need you. The work has stopped. I need you to restore me. I need your spirit, the great helper who he loves to send to come and blow on the embers of our hearts and cause them to heat up again to the things that he's called you to. If you're here and you're feeling like you have given up in some areas, God is calling you to, to freshly trust him again, to bow your hearts to him, to put your trust fully in him, to say yes to joining him in faith and in perseverance in the face of trouble. 